Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Greetings, dear Madisonians. Before I bring you my conversation with Dr. Aaron Cariotti, I wanted to let you know that for some reason we lost audio for a second as Dr. Cariotti was talking about two places where at one point we saw higher rates of COVID infection in vaccinated people than in unvaccinated. You'll hear him mention Ontario. The other place he mentions there that got cut off is Israel. The rest of the conversation is smooth sailing. So without any further ado, my conversation with Dr. Aaron Cariotti. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and as you can probably tell, I'm a little bit under the weather today. So it is my great good fortune that we have with us today a doctor, a real doctor, the kind with an MD, not the kind we usually talk to. Our guest today is Dr. Aaron Cariotti. He is currently Chief of Psychiatry and Ethics at Doc One Health and Chief of Medical Ethics at the Unity Project. He is a Fellow and Director of the Program in Bioethics and American Democracy at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and a Senior Fellow and Director of the Health and Human Flourishing Program at the Zephyr Institute. For many years, he was Professor of Psychiatry at the University of California Irvine School of Medicine and director of the medical ethics program at UCI Health, where he chaired the ethics committee. He also chaired the ethics committee at the California Department of State Hospitals for several years. Dr. Cariotti graduated from the University of Notre Dame in philosophy and pre-medical sciences, earned his MD degree from Georgetown University, and completed residency training in psychiatry at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Aaron Cariotti, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thanks, you know, it's great to be here. As I mentioned in your bio there, for nearly 15 years, you served as a professor at the UCI School of Medicine and director of the medical ethics program at UCI Health. In December of 2021, you received an email informing you that you had been fired. What happened? Well, to make a long story short, back in August, I filed a lawsuit against the University of California challenging their vaccine mandate in federal court. And in the wake of that, I was first placed on investigatory leave from the university. So that that started on uh, October 1st. A month later, I was placed on unpaid suspension and about six weeks after that, I received the notice of termination of dismissal from the university. And all of those actions were taken against me for alleged non-compliance with the vaccine mandate, the very same mandate that I was challenging in federal court, um, challenging the constitutionality of that particular policy. I, I say alleged because the university also twice rejected my uh, request for a medical exemption. So uh, I, I took steps to try to come into compliance with the policy, even though I was arguing in federal court that the policy was unconstitutional. Uh, the university refused to work with me or find a way to accommodate me, um, but moved basically as quickly as they could through their disciplinary process, as quickly as their policies allowed. 
to uh, place me on leave and then subsequently fire me. So, um, so I can't prove that it was in retaliation to the lawsuit, but the timing certainly seems suspicious. The day that I was placed on, uh, on leave, for example, was the day after uh, the court denied my request for a preliminary injunction, which would have paused the policy while my case was being heard. And the case is still being heard in, uh, in the appellate court. So it, it, we haven't finished with that litigation yet. Um, the policy was not placed on hold by the court while the case was being adjudicated. So the university, uh, you know, the day after they received that notice from the court moved to basically start the process of, of getting rid of me. Thinking about vaccine mandates, if you tell someone you're not vaccinated, you'll get a dirty look. As the president has said, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, right? COVID-19 is a deadly virus that has cost millions of lives. And we now have a vaccine that makes the virus considerably less dangerous. It used to be that, uh, you know, 10 months ago, a year ago, I would have said, we now have a vaccine that eliminates or eradicates the virus. Now I say, makes it considerably less dangerous. We have a moral obligation to protect the vulnerable. And this is a safe and effective way to do this. What's wrong with that reasoning? Well, there are several things wrong with that reasoning. And I'll just start from my own case, for example, is not really a comparison of vaccinated people to unvaccinated people. It's a comparison of uh, vac- people with vaccine-induced immunity to people with infection-induced immunity. So my lawsuit is specifically on behalf of individuals like me who have had COVID and recovered and have so-called natural immunity or infection-induced immunity to the virus. And we've known for a long time, uh, certainly since I filed my, my suit back in August, there was plenty of evidence, now over 150 studies on uh, natural immunity for COVID showing that 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 form of immunity after recovering from COVID is more effective and longer lasting than the immunity conferred by the vaccines, right? So this dividing people into the vaccinated and unvaccinated is actually from a public health standpoint, not an accurate way to assess risks from COVID, a more accurate kind of categorization, if we wanna put, put things in those terms, would be those who are more immune, either because they have infection-induced immunity or vaccine-induced immunity, versus those who are less immune because they don't have one of those forms of acquired immunity. Uh, So I would contest the way in which the issue is often framed, and certainly that characterization of a pandemic of the unvaccinated doesn't take into account the fact that now after the Omicron variant, a majority of those unvaccinated individuals have natural immunity and are uh, at least as protective and uh, very likely more protective as those who just had the vaccine but, but had not acquired COVID. So that's, that's the first I think, issue that I would have with that characterization. The second uh, problem with that characterization is that it relies on a common good argument that might apply in the case of other vaccines, but does not apply in the case of COVID vaccines. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So the common good argument says, well, perhaps you're young and healthy and you're not at significant risk of bad outcomes from COVID, but you should get vaccinated anyway in order to protect the elderly or the infirm. In order to protect grandma, you should do this for the sake of other people. Now, if we had what's called a sterilizing vaccine for COVID, that's a vaccine that stops 
not only severe symptoms, but also prevents you from getting a low level infection that you can transmit to other people. If we had a sterilizing vaccine, that argument would carry more force. And some vaccines come pretty close to doing that. The measles vaccine is far closer, for example, to being a sterilizing vaccine than any of the COVID vaccines, which is a really good thing because measles is even more infectious than COVID. It's very, very contagious. Unfortunately, none of the currently available vaccines that we have for COVID are sterilizing. They do not stop infection and transmission. Um, they may lower the odds of infection and transmission, but we now know that that effect is only temporary. So that effect starts to wane at about four months. And you know, by six months, the vaccines basically provide uh, very little protection against infection with COVID. They might still offer some protection against more severe symptoms, uh, but they don't really prevent the virus from spreading. And actually, you don't have to be an epidemiologist to realize this now. After the most recent Omicron wave, I think everyone either has experienced personally or knows people uh, who have experienced personally having been vaccinated, perhaps even gotten a third dose booster shot, who nonetheless got infected with COVID and who nonetheless may have passed COVID on to other people in their household or at their place of employment. So it's, it's very patently obvious to everyone now just from firsthand experience, but it's also been obvious in the data for, um, you know, for probably close to nine months now mm -hmm. that these vaccines don't really protect other people. And so we're left with a situation in which for the COVID vaccines, the risks and benefits of getting vaccinated really accrue to the individual who's receiving the vaccine or declining the vaccine. So the traditional Hippocratic medical ethics of informed consent ought to apply, right? If, if you, Nino, are the one who is taking on uh, the potential benefits of the, va the vaccine or the potential risks of the vaccine, and it's not really impacting the people around you, you should have the right uh, of informed consent and informed refusal to the vaccine. So that's where the, the mandate argument in terms of the common good or do it for the sake of others really breaks down when you look at the empirical realities of what these vaccines can and cannot accomplish. And I would say there's now emerging evidence that's very concerning. And some people have tried to, to warn about this. Kurt Vandenbosch, for example, has been very vocal saying that mass vaccination in the middle of a pandemic with a respiratory virus like this that can evolve very quickly may in the end do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. Rather than using the vaccines in a targeted way for people that are most at risk of bad outcomes from COVID, we've tried to inoculate everyone against COVID. And that has done a couple of things. One is that it has driven the, the emergence or the evolution of new variants that are selected for precisely to avoid or evade vaccine immunity, right? So the vaccines confer immunity only against the original spike protein on the original alpha type variant, the Wuhan variant of the virus. And that's precisely the part of the virus that has evolved during Delta and again during Omicron. And uh, so we've got a vaccine now that's tuned to a variant that no longer exists. That's probably one of the reasons the vaccine efficacy against infection from Omicron declined basically to zero. And the booster efficacy only went up to about 37% against 
Omicron, which is well below the 50% threshold that is required for FDA authorization. So if these vaccines were to seek FDA authorization today, based on their performance, let's say during the Omicron wave, they would not have been authorized, right? They, they may have had more utility against the original wave, uh, but they're less useful now. So continuing to deploy this tool that's not really built to handle uh, what the virus is currently doing and where it's at now is one potential problem. Um, and another problem is that it, it may actually be tuning our immune system to be too narrowly focused on that particular variant. And, and some people have argued, and this is still a hypothesis, I think it hasn't been definitively established, so there needs to be more research, but it's plausible that this is actually going to make it more difficult for people to acquire robust natural immunity hmm. if they get an infection after vaccination because their immune system, rather than creating a, a broad response to many different parts on the virus, many different antigens on the virus, uh, is going to be too focused because of the uh, vaccine imprinting on that original spike protein that is no longer with us. And some people have argued this could actually increase the vaccinated person's susceptibility to future variants. Now, is there any actual evidence for this beyond just this, this theory, this so-called original Ontario Canada being two of them, where we recently saw the rates of infection toward the end of the Omicron wave, the rates of infection, not just the total number of infections, but the rates per 100,000 were actually higher among the vaccinated than among the unvaccinated. And what can account for that? We don't know for sure, but the, the, the mechanism of the process that I just mentioned, which goes under the name of original antigenic sin, is one possible uh, explanation for that data. Another possible explanation is a process called antibody-dependent enhancement. We, we don't need to get into the weeds on these different theories, but all that to say, that there's reason to believe uh, that not only are the vaccines going to be less effective now than they were at the beginning of the pandemic, but if they're deployed on a mass scale rather than in a targeted way, they could actually create more problems than they, than they solve. You don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, and you certainly don't have to provide any names in response, but I am curious. As you were going through, one, uh, filing this lawsuit, and two, going through the ordeal with the university, trying to get an exemption and have them putting you on administrative leave. Did you get much support, either public or private, from colleagues? I got a, a lot of private support from colleagues, and I got some public support from uh, colleagues at the University of California. In fact, several of them uh, were expert witnesses on my case. Mm -hmm. They submitted expert witness declarations uh, faculty from UCLA, faculty from UCSF. Um, so yeah, there are many people at the university who have publicly supported me. Many who have also privately supported me um, and you know, for, for their own reasons have done that quietly and I'll respect their confidentiality in that regard. Certainly I've had a lot of support from students who felt steamrolled by these vaccine mandates and from residents who felt steamrolled by these vaccine mandates. And and actually, Nino, it's been it's been quite edifying and sometimes overwhelming. I've I've had people reach out from outside the university as well. I mean, uh, thousands of, of 
emails and messages to me from uh, people thanking me for the stance that I took in, in filing that lawsuit. So I've heard from people literally from all over the world, from Australia, uh, from, from Indonesia, from uh, the Middle East, from Europe, uh, from, from South America. So I, I've, I've actually made many new friends through this process, even though you know, I lost some colleagues at the university. Um, many other people have you know, looked at, at my situation and my case and have expressed support for me. And some of them have done it in a very public way on social media, for example. With time, we may and hopefully will have a clearer picture of the various motivations and fears of political, corporate, and educational leaders. Uh, but from where we sit now, it seems difficult to say, for example, why schools like Princeton University, considered one of the world's premier institutions of higher education, or the University of California, have embraced and stuck with so many COVID policies that have absolutely no rational basis. Yeah. And when you consider what you went through, your own ordeal, you write that throughout this process, quote, the university's leadership was not interested in scientific debate or ethical deliberation, end quote. So I'm curious why you think that is, both with the University of California, but more interestingly, our society in general. Why is it that we seem so interested in actually getting to the bottom of the science of this, the ethics of all this? Well, it's a question that I've puzzled over uh, a lot, you know, and I don't know that I have a complete answer to the question. I can say when it comes to the universities, I think risk management considerations and liability considerations overrode uh, scientific considerations. And what I mean by that is, you know, we have a situation in which uh, pharmaceutical companies are shielded from liability for any adverse effects from vaccines. They're not shielded from liability for adverse effects from the medications that they release. Um, Pfizer, if they develop a new medication, would, would never shorten the clinical trial uh, you know, the, the way that they did for the vaccines because they know they're going to be liable for safety issues. They don't want another Vioxx or another uh, liability disaster on their hands. So they're, they're going to be very careful about assessing their own product for safety. But you know that they're going to behave differently when they're shielded from all liability. I mean, you can imagine how, for example, an automobile manufacturer might behave differently when it comes to safety issues on their car if they if they knew uh, that they would be shielded from all liability yeah. uh, if you know something bad happens in an accident or one of the safety mechanisms on the car fails. So um, so I think what's happened in the, in this situation is you have the the manufacturers shielded from liability. The CDC disclaims all liability for vaccine mandates because they. They say correctly, though somewhat disingenuously, that um, they don't mandate anything. They don't make federal law. They don't make policy for other institutions. They just make recommendations. Um, I say disingenuous, however, because they know and all the rest of us know that all the mandates uh, look to the CDC's recommendation as their, their foundation, as, as their basis uh, to justify the mandate. That's exactly what the University of California did. So the University of California disclaims any liability for harms by saying, we're just following the CDC recommendation. The CDC disclaims all liability for harms by saying, we don't mandate anything. We just give recommendations. These other institutions can decide 
what they want to do with those recommendations. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the pharma company disclaims all liability. So you have a situation in which, let's suppose someone suffers a severe adverse reaction to a vaccine that they really didn't want to take, uh, but they took only in order that they could maintain their job or stay in school or not lose their scholarship or whatever. So they, they did it under considerable uh, financial or other forms of pressure. Uh, they basically have no recourse uh, to, um, to, to, let's say, sue for damages as a result of having been coerced to take something that ended up harming them. I think the universities made a calculation, and the calculation was basically that um, if we're shielded from liability from harms for any COVID policies that we institute, then we should take the most severe and draconian and kind of extreme policies uh, just so that we can say uh, we did everything we could, right? So if some, if some student gets COVID, has a bad outcome from COVID, the university can fall back on, you know, we were, we were the most stringent university in the country when it came to COVID mitigation measures. And so what happened was a kind of mimetic contagion took, took over our institutions. And they, I think they were scrambling all over one another to be, to be more severe and stringent in their mitigation efforts. And it almost, in a sense, didn't matter if those mitigation efforts didn't work, right? At least we're trying to do something. I think uh, it became sort of the, the driving mentality. So I think that was a, I think that was a risk management calculation on the part of universities. I think it was a calculation that did enormous harm to students. Healthy students of high school or college age are not at risk for bad outcomes from COVID. Uh, the risks are infinitesimally small to that population. Uh, and yet the burdens of lockdowns, the burdens of stay-at-home orders, the burdens of the distance learning that we subjected our students to uh, those were disproportionately felt um, by by students. The the what I call the other pandemic, the lockdown mental health crisis, disproportionately impacted college age students. Such that back in July of 2020, uh, one in four uh, adolescents and young adults in the United States had seriously contemplated suicide sometime in the last 30 days. That was an astonishing. Uh, statistic, more than double what we usually see in terms of baseline rates of suicidal ideation among adolescents and young adults. So, so the harms are very severe, um, but I, I think those harms, unfortunately, were ignored in favor of focusing exclusively on one metric, which was COVID case counts or COVID hospitalizations. Yeah, I, I want to drill in on this a little bit. You mentioned a little bit the sort of decentralized nature of authority here. Uh, yeah. and in an article, you wrote about the uh, anatomy of coercion. And I'll put a link to that article uh, from your substack. I'll put a link to your substack in that article in the show notes. But in this article, you, you write this, quote, it's impossible to pinpoint the relevant authority. You know that enormous power is being exercised over your body and your health, 
but with no locus of responsibility for the decision and no liability for the outcomes. It's that last piece there that's terrifying to me. No liability for the outcomes. Because we can't, right, you kind of walk into, let's say, an airport or a school or a mall, and everywhere around you, you see signs telling you, you must wear a mask. You ask 10 people in there, I would be surprised if one of them could tell you under what authority you must be Mm -hmm. wearing a mask. They don't Mm -hmm. know. And what this means is that liability, holding people accountable for this and for these problems that that you've identified, right? People losing their jobs, serious mental illnesses, uh, delayed uh, speech development with children. We're not going to be able to hold these people accountable. Well, it's a serious problem. And it's it's sort of, it's almost like we're living under a worldwide bureaucracy. Somebody once quipped, I don't remember if it was Chesterton or who it was, that, you know, bureaucracy is a place where enormous power is exercised over you with no locus of responsibility. And that was sort of the theme of the article that I, that, that you just cited. And it sort of feels like the entire world has become that during COVID. And, you know, it's, it's a very scary thing because uh, in a free and democratic society, we have to be able to lo- locate the, 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 the locus of, of authority, the sovereign, right? Who do we need to vote out of office to rectify this if we think it's a problem, right? right? But what's happened during COVID, uh, during a, the, this state of exception or this declared state of emergency is that these kind of powers have been relegated uh, and sometimes delegated to unelected bureaucrats yeah. who exercise these powers, but again, don't claim responsibility or authority to do so. So, um, you know, the Board of Regents of the University of California or a CEO of a company can institute a vaccine mandate, right, and not be responsible for any harms that that vaccine mandate does um, and, and claim that, again, they were just sort of doing what everyone else is doing. And you can, you can try to trace, you know, where does this actually originate and who can I hold responsible and just end up running round and round and round in circles. And I think part of this stems from this whole uh, issue of a prolonged state of emergency. So President Biden and HHS Secretary Javier Becerra, former uh, surgeon, or former uh, attorney general of, mm-hmm. of California, man with no public health uh, training or experience, uh, who's now the leading sort of public health agency authority in the federal government, uh, recently extended the state of emergency and, and did so kind of in an open-ended and indefinite way. Now, one, one of the things that's happened is that what counts as a public health emergency or the criteria for this state of emergency have never been explicitly defined from the beginning of the pandemic until now, right? And if you read President Biden's recent letter explaining why he extended the state of emergency, it doesn't actually give any specific criteria in terms of, let's say, COVID cases, COVID hospitalizations, COVID deaths, comparison to previous uh, periods of time when the state of emergency was invoked. It, it merely said, you know, COVID has taken the lives of lots and lots of people, and so it's serious, right? And that's the only justification that's deemed necessary for these extra constitutional powers to be arrogated right, to to certain individuals without any judicial or legislative checks on that system, right? 
And I think one of the reasons that it's left open-ended, I think it's deliberate, is that if they define the criteria for what constitutes a public health emergency, then you would know when the emergency is over, right? And the American people would be able to demand, look, we hit those metrics, right? The hospitals aren't exceeding their surge capacity. People are not dying in the streets. There's no longer an emergency. This has to stop, right? But these are people who have um, arrogated powers that they are reluctant to give back. And, and we know that that's a basic feature of human nature. People do not voluntarily relinquish power very easily. You know, George Washington stepping down after um, you know, a couple of terms as, pres as, as president is the exception that, that only goes to prove the rule, right? So someone of enormous character may be capable of doing that, uh, but most, most politicians are not very eager to relinquish uh, authority after a given period of time. So I think one of the important outcomes from this is that we need uh, a clear legislative definition of what constitutes a state of emergency. And we need laws on the books that would allow for legislative and or judicial checks on that state of emergency to ensure that you know, the next thing coming down the pike is not declared a public health emergency for the purpose of, um, of, of, of taking on um, you know, enormous powers that are gonna be very hard to relinquish once that supposed emergency has, has passed. So I think this is a really big picture sort of uh, uh, political and constitutional issue that this pandemic has highlighted for us that really needs to be dealt with as part of the post-mortem. That would also help with the whole issue of, of locus of, of responsibility as well. You said, quote, our ruling class has seen in COVID an opportunity to revolutionize society. You said that at a rally in DC to end the mandates. Two questions come from that. One, what do you mean by our ruling class? I'm assuming you mean something broader than just government officials. And then two, yes. what is the nature of this revolution? So the ruling class, um, the ruling class can be defined very broadly. Another term I've used in some of my writings uh, is the laptop class, okay? Mm -hmm. These are the people, let's go back to lockdowns. These are the people who could relatively easily work from home, may have even preferred to work from home. Uh, and so we're in favor of lockdowns and we're in favor of prolonged lockdowns because, you know, hey, I get to eat lunch with my kids and I get to take a break and you know, go for a bike ride in the afternoon or I get to you know, sit on Zoom wearing my pajamas all day long and nobody's gonna know the difference. Um, but the, the harms of lockdowns disproportionately fell on the working class and the essential workers who could not work from home. And so they disproportionately took on the burdens of uh, COVID infection in those early waves as well. Um, you know, prior to the availability of a vaccine and prior to the availability of uh, and the knowledge of early treatments that could have helped them. So, uh, so I think our COVID response largely has been unintentionally on the part of many, but intentionally on the part of at least some, a kind of class war. If you mm -hmm. look at, if you look at what happened economically during uh, 2020 and 2021, there was basically a massive transfer of wealth upwards, right? From the middle class and the working class to, uh, to, to the ultra-rich, and in many cases, the ultra-rich tech elite. Uh, 
Hmm. So Amazon, which has its office, you know, its headquarters in Seattle, lobbied the West Coast states, uh, Washington, Oregon, and California in favor of lockdowns. Why did Amazon lobby in favor of lockdowns? Was it because they had special expertise in public health measures and they were looking out for the common good? No, they lobbied in favor of lockdowns because if there are stay-at-home orders, you're more likely to utilize Amazon to purchase things rather than going to the grocery store, right? Uh, we know that uh, hundreds of thousands of small businesses uh, shuttered and, and most of them are, are not going to reopen as a consequence of lockdowns. Well, that's, uh, that's very convenient for Amazon because it eliminates their competition. If the mom and shop bookstore down the street is no longer in business, well, I can't go there anymore to buy books. I have to order them online from Amazon. So I think there, are, there were global financial interests that pushed for harmful lockdown policies that, that harmed the common good and harmed the population as a whole, but benefited them in some way, usually financially or ec economically. So narrowing down on our ruling class, I would include not only government officials, but also global financial elites probably represented in terms of their ideology, um, you know, most publicly and clearly by the World Economic Forum, um, and by you know their affiliates at BlackRock and other you know enormous kind of financial uh, multinational financial instruments, um, but certainly uh, certainly the the ruling class would not be confined to, um, uh, to to those institutions. But I think those institutions would be representative of a group of people that is very publicly and clearly um, and and has said very publicly and clearly that COVID is an opportunity to change just about everything, right? <laughs> to, uh, to change how we relate to one another, to change how we do business with one another, to, um, to put an infrastructure in place that can be used to monitor and surveil and nudge and potentially even control people's behaviors, right? This is where this is where the issue of vaccine passports come, co comes in. I think pa vaccine passports were uh, a, a significant and important step in terms of putting in place a, a, a regime that, that melded, that welded public health to digital technologies, to uh, police powers of the state or uh, uh, coercive powers exercised by public or private institutions in order to get a particular behavioral outcome that you want. In this case, the behavioral outcome was get everyone vaccinated. Now, I think even if you think get everyone vaccinated was a good idea, right, you can still kind of step back and, you know, hopefully scratch your head and say, well, I might've been first in line for the vaccine. I may have been really enthusiastic. Maybe I'm still really enthusiastic about these vaccines. And I think everyone really ought to get them. But what do I think about um, an infrastructure where I have to show a QR code, attesting that I've done what I've been told to do by the government or by my employer in order to get on a train, get on a plane, go to a restaurant, access public spaces, Right. Again, I may have been all in favor of this particular health decision for myself or my family. But what about the next thing that they're going to 
require of me? What about the next thing that, that they're going to ask me to do? What if it's something that I'm not so inclined to do, but you know, in the meantime, over the last two years, everyone has gotten used to doing this. It's become a normal part of kind of societal life and social functioning to ask people to disclose private protected health information in order to basically be a functioning member of society. Um, you know, where is that going to take us? And I think right now, even more than a postmortem on what went wrong with pandemic policies, and we can argue about that. Um, I, I think that the more crucial issue right now is these things that have been put in place over the last two years, things that we never could have dreamed of doing mm. two and a half years ago that we've kind of gotten used to doing now. Are these positive developments? Are these conducive to personal privacy? Are these conducive to societal flourishing? Are these conducive to social harmony or are they divisive? Are they discriminatory in some way? Are they excessively invasive and intrusive? Um, I think those are the, the really important questions for us to address now. I think it's, it's obviously very important to do a postmortem on the pandemic. And Congress has actually talked about doing that. There's, there seems to be bipartisan interest in a sort of COVID commission to look back and see, you know, what did we do well? What did we do badly? What could we do better in the future? And, you know, uh, as with any political initiative, that kind of thing is going to have its limitations and there's going to be political influences on it. But, but nonetheless, I think if, if there was truly a bipartisan appointed commission um, that, would, that would dig into that, that would be a good thing. So that would be retrospective. But there's also a real need for prospective thinking about the emergence of, of what I've called this biosecurity surveillance regime, the, the welding of public health to digital technologies of surveillance to uh, police powers or uh, other coercive measures. It's been surprising to me, I think to many others as well, just how much the American people have been willing to take over yeah. the past couple of years. Like you said, two, two years ago, two and a half years ago, I never would have imagined that I would be expected to scan a QR code to prove my vaccination and my booster in order to get into a restaurant. You often cite Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And in his, his great work, The Gulag Archipelago, he says of his Russian citizens, fellow Russian citizens in the gulags, quote, we hurried to submit. We submitted with pleasure. We purely and simply deserved everything that happened afterward, end quote. Why did we hurry to submit, right? I mean, at the University of Nevada at Reno, students protested the repeal of the mask mandate, not the mask mandate, but the repeal of that mandate. Where is the spirit of 1776? What happened? Yeah. People were subjected to a climate of fear for months and months and months on end. So the, the specter, for example, of asymptomatic spread, which never had any scientific basis, didn't have any scientific basis for previous um, airborne respiratory viruses, and we now know had no scientific basis for COVID. This turned every fellow citizen into, into a potential threat to my existence to be avoided, right? I don't have to just avoid people who are coughing and sneezing and feverish, which you know makes sense and most people would agree. If you have symptoms, stay home, try not to infect others. 
but I have to avoid everyone. Uh, it would be hard to devise a, a social practice or a social policy that would be more destructive of the social fabric than that one, right? Um, we created a situation in which people were told ad nauseum that the highest form of civic participation was non-participation, was stay at home, don't interact with anyone, sit behind a screen, and if you get symptomatic, isolate yourself in the room and don't even you know, talk to your, or be around your, your family, right? Uh, we had months on end of the media showing uh, COVID case counts and death counts without any context to put those numbers into some sort of perspective, right? So anytime in epidemiology, you just have raw numbers thrown at you, you know, X number of thousand people have, have COVID or have been hospitalized or died. Uh, those numbers without context are numbers that most people without training in epidemiology can't make sense of. I mean, what does that mean? You know, one in, uh, one in 500 people died of COVID in uh, 2020. I think that was a statistic that I saw thrown around. Um, and well, that sounds scary, right? Like um, I can imagine 500 people in a room and one of those dying, that's, that's tragic. Well, but to put that number in context, one in 250 people that year died of heart disease, right? Which is also tragic, but it's also a basic fact of life that people die, right? So without, um, without baseline levels of comparison, people had no way to make sense out of that information. And that, created, that helped to create a climate of fear. When people are afraid, when they're locked down, when they're socially isolated, when they're subjected to scary and kind of inflammatory information presented on the news, they are easier to control. People who are afraid and isolated are easier to control. People who are afraid and isolated are looking to an authority to give them an answer to get out of that state of uh, fear and isolation, right? Which is very, very intolerable, right? So when people are told that the vaccines are the ticket out of the pandemic, they're gonna willingly comply, right? They're not gonna to ask too many questions that the vaccines turned out not to be the ticket out of the pandemic because they were leaky and they didn't stop infection in transmission, I think is something that people are now waking up to. But, um, but at the time, that was not the information about the vaccines that was prevented, quite the opposite. They, many on TV um, uh, can be quoted as, as claiming that the vaccine stopped infection and transmission. If you get the vaccine, you're not only gonna avoid getting COVID, you're gonna avoid infecting anyone else with COVID. Um, so I, I, I think in order to understand people's behavior, you have to start with the, um, the climate that was created in society by lockdowns, by information that was presented in the, in the media, and by this um, specter of asymptomatic spread to understand the fear that was created, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And in some cases it was intentional, right? We have information from Great Britain, for example, that they have this behavioral nudge unit um, that you know, attempts to, advi that advises the government on how to kind of alter people's behaviors. And they were consulted during COVID and they advise basically strategies to induce fear in order to increase compliance with things like lockdowns 
or vaccines. You know, that's, uh, that's, that's also, I think, a very serious problem for a free and open society because what, what responsible public health authorities ought to do is they ought to say, okay, we're gonna take complex and evolving information, do our best to distill it and simplify it so that the average person can understand. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, oversimplifying complex information in order to make it more readily understandable to the average person. Um, we're gonna give people the most accurate information that we have in order that they can make good informed decisions for themselves and their families. That's not what we did. What the public health authorities did instead was they started with a particular behavioral outcome that they wanted to achieve. Everyone stay home or everyone get the vaccine or everyone wash their hands more, practice social distancing, disinfect services or whatever. And based on that behavioral outcome that we want to induce, we're only gonna give you information that we think will encourage that outcome and discourage you from doing something else, right? Well, when you do that, you're not actually educating the public. What you're doing is basically engaging in propaganda. And the corollary of approaching things in that way is also censor censorship, right? Because if information, even if true information, comes out that might discourage a particular behavioral outcome, right? Adverse effects from the vaccine, that information has to be censored, right? Even if it's true, because it's gonna somehow undermine the goal of universal vaccination. And so that's, that's what we saw, I think, unfolding during the pandemic. And um, you know, engaging that kind of propaganda is uh, irresponsible, it's harmful, and it leads to the kind of uh, uh, censorship that we, that we saw during the pandemic. Um, and I think so part of the, part of the reckoning, part of the postmortem, part of the autopsy of what's happened over the last two years needs to include um, a, a careful analysis of um, the way in which our public health authorities approach trying to influence people's behavior in relation to the pandemic. There's a concern that the trust in our institutions of public health and our government and in our institutions of higher education has just been so thoroughly shattered yeah. that it can't be put back together. That yeah. even this, this idea of a commission to investigate what went wrong with COVID, even the findings of that would just be rejected out of hand because we just can't trust these people anymore. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that? Do you think that the problem is that far advanced or is there some trust left over that can just be rebuilt? And if so, what would that look like to rebuild that? I think the problem of broken trust is very far advanced, um, that there are significant segments of the population that have lost all trust, not only in, in government, which is, you know, nothing new. People who lean conservative tend to have a kind of, you know, a baseline mistrust of, of government or large government or governmental bureaucracies. But uh, what's even more concerning to me is trust in public health institutions and trust in medical institutions. And in many cases, I think that compromised trust in medical institutions is, um, is justified, right? Medical institutions, hospitals, um, uh, professional medical associations, others who should have known better and acted uh, more uprightly uh, were, I think, severely compromised. 
during the pandemic and, and um, failed to call attention to many of the problems with our pandemic response. And so there, there are lots of people out there, people who never would have said this two years ago, but now say, I, I never want to go to a hospital ever again. Now, are they overstating things a little bit? If they got hit by a car, would they want to be taken to the emergency room? Probably, right? But this notion that you have lots of Americans out there, not just sort of fringe types, um, but uh, you know, high-functioning, successful, mainstream, whatever Americans who say, I don't trust hospitals, that's a very, very serious problem because medicine cannot uh, cannot be practiced if the public in general and if patients in particular do not trust physicians or do not trust the institutions within which physicians and nurses have to operate in order to do their job. Um, can that trust be rebuilt? Yes, but I think it's, I think it's going to take a lot of work. It'll probably take a generation or two for that to happen. I think um, th the way to try to facilitate that would be a kind of truth and reconciliation commission along the lines of what happened after apartheid. And, and you know, people, you know, people can laugh at that notion, but I'm I'm actually deadly serious when I when I say this. Um, maybe deadly is the wrong adjective. I'm very serious about this. And and you know, reconciliation in, in healing is needed for our society uh, because people have been hurt by these things. Right? And so forgiveness is going to be necessary uh, you know, among family members who have been divided by the divisive COVID rhetoric and divisive COVID policies. Um, but truth and re reconciliation begins with truth, right? It, it, it's going to have to begin with certain people in authority acknowledging that they were wrong or acknowledging that policies that they implemented or that they supported uh, actually ended up harming people. Um, or didn't actually work to stop the spread of COVID, right? Um, and what are the chances of that happening? I, I don't, I've seen a few brave voices admit publicly that they were wrong about certain things, but I haven't seen a large groundswell of people in positions of authority who are ready to admit uh, that they were wrong about certain things. I, I think the Omicron wave was a big wake up call that the lockdowns, the social distancing, the masking, the scrubbing of surfaces, all the rest of it um, that was supposed to slow the spread or the vaccines that were supposed to stop the spread, none of those things stopped the spread of COVID, right? Uh, uh, th th that wave still swept through the population. Fortunately, it wasn't as severe in terms of um, uh, morbidity and mortality as uh, previous waves, at least in, in individual cases. Uh, there was a lot of morbidity and mortality uh, because more people got infected. So it was more infectious, less severe. Um, but, it, you know, in spite of all of those things, a majority of Americans have still gotten COVID. Well over 50% um, have, have still gotten COVID. And the rest eventually are going to get exposed to COVID. There's no way for us to eradicate COVID. Um, that's a failure of our policies. Just plain and simple. It's a failure of our policies to achieve what people said that they would achieve. Instead of acknowledging that failure, we're, we're sort of quietly just shuttering <laughs> uh, these policies. We're, we're walking them back 
Um, and then hoping people will be, you know, so entranced by the war between Russia and Ukraine that we'll forget <laughs> about COVID and what happened with COVID. And I, I think kind of sweeping those failures under the rug um, is not going to be sufficient, right? Quietly walking back some of these damaging policies is not going to be sufficient. Uh, the healing and the reconciliation that needs to occur has to begin with truth. A final question. We're down to our, our last few minutes, our last few seconds, but I, I can't let our listeners go without asking this question. I'm almost scared to ask it though. Any signs, any causes for optimism over the past two years, anything at all? Yeah. yeah, I think more and more people are coming out of a kind of sleepwalking trance where they were just uncritically accepting whatever advice they were getting from CNN or MSNBC or when they turn on their TV or the local public health authority, and they're starting to ask more critical questions. So, so that mistrust that we talked about earlier, which is certainly going to be a problem if, if people refuse, let's say, to seek medical care, um, is also a healthy sign in the sense that it's, uh, it's going to lead, I think, more Americans to more critical awareness and more critical thinking in terms of the ways in which many of our trusted, previously trusted institutions have been compromised um, by uh, uh, political or financial or other uh, conflicts of interest. And if that leads to demands for uh, reform of these institutions, then I think that will be a good thing. So I actually, I actually see that as a little bit of a two-edged sword right? This, this widespread mistrust of our institutions is certainly an issue that has to be addressed, right? Um, but it's also a sign that I think people are not going to just swallow and accept uncritically, um, you know, whatever they're told. They're going to they're gonna start asking more pointed and more critical questions. And, you know, for a healthy democratic society, I think a healthy degree of skepticism and a healthy degree of, of a feeling empowered that, you know, yes, there is expertise, but I am in possession of logic. I am in possession of common sense. Um, if what I'm being told just doesn't add up or just doesn't make sense, right? If, if, if what I'm being told just logically contradicts what I was told three weeks ago, I can't outsource my logic and common sense to these so-called experts. I have to think for my self, right? And in a society where we believe every citizen has the right to vote and to participate in the political process, I think um, that reassuming of responsibility is, is a very healthy sign. So that's, I think, one of the signs, both of concern, but also on the flip side, is, is also a sign of hope. Our guest today has been Dr. Aaron Cariotti. Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much for all of your great work on this topic. And um, thank you for your example. You know, you're one of those few guys who's actually putting his money where his mouth is. And so we're all especially grateful for that. Thank you, Nina. Enjoy the conversation. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. I'd been following Dr. Cariotti's work and his struggle with UCI for some time now. So it was a great pleasure to have him on the show today. Be sure to visit the show notes where you'll find a collection of articles by Aaron a link to a video of a recent Senate testimony he gave, and a link to his Substack. 
finally, my apologies again for the minor audio glitch near the beginning of the conversation. I'm not sure what happened. With that, we'll bring things to a close. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes. <laughs>